Would you give a warm PFP uh, purpose welcome to Dr. Hugh Ross as he comes to share with us. Now, Dr. Ross, um, as we start off, I just have one burning question I need to ask. Is, is there scientific evidence that bald men are smarter than other men? I did just want to know the evidence uh, for that. Thing. Well, there's actually a Bible verse, oh, Leviticus 1340. So. Okay. If a man is bald, he is clean. Oh, but that, you know, that uh, clean's as good as smart, I think. So that is great. So, well, tell us, first of all, we want to hear your story, you know. How did you, first of all, get interested in astronomy? Well, uh, I was born and raised in Canada. And uh, I was seven years of age when I looked up at the stars and wanted to know why they were hot. Uh, my parents told me they indeed were hot, but couldn't tell me why. They encouraged me to go to the library. And uh, I came home with five textbooks on astronomy. And every weekend I would get another five. At the age of seven? Seven, okay, yes. Okay, got it. Okay. Uh, and by eight years, I knew that my future career would lie in astrophysics and at starting at age eight, I would kind of look at a separate sub-discipline of astronomy and study that in depth. And uh, so, and I read in your bio that you were young, one of the youngest lecturers, or the youngest lecturer that's there in your bio with regard. Yeah, to I started giving like lectures at the university uh, on different subjects in astronomy starting at age sixteen. At age sixteen, you began right. to give lectures on that. Very okay. Now. Did you grow up in a Christian home? Did you, you know, the no. stereotype is usually you grow up, whatever you grow up with, you look for reasons to believe what you were taught when you grew up. What was your background? Well, my parents were certainly very much wanting to encourage a moral uh, upbringing. So I had that benefit. Um, but my parents were insistent. There was no such thing as eternal life. And uh, I didn't know any Christians, didn't get to know any until I showed up at Caltech at age 27. You had never really known a Christian until age 27. Well, I discovered I had met Christians, but I didn't even know they were Christians wow. uh, until, literally, I was 27. However, I did get to see two Christians from 30 feet away when I was 11 years of age. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> were they in the zoo in Canada? Well, no, they were two businessmen in dark suits. Okay. They came into our public school put two boxes on our teacher's desk and left without saying a single word. Okay. But in those boxes were Gideon Bibles. Oh. And we're all invited to take one. And I still pack around that Gideon Bible oh, that I got at age at 11. Oh. And I didn't read it until I was 17. And what happened was at age 16, I was studying cosmology, oh. the science of the origin and structure of the universe, mm -hmm. and recognized that of all the explanations for the beginning of the universe, the Big Bang was the one that was fitting the data best and realize if it's Big Bang, there's a beginning. If there's a beginning, there must be a beginner. And that's what motivated me to start studying the different religions of the world, different philosophical systems, to see if any of them was comporting with what I was seeing in astronomy. And uh, so I ruled out uh, Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and at the very end, I picked up this Gideon Bible and began to go through it and immediately realized how different it was from all the other holy books. It wasn't vague, esoteric poetry. There was no appeal to intellectual snobbery. Things were clear and direct. I also noticed it had a message of morality that was far superior to what I read in any other holy book. Uh, but what especially caught my attention is it contained all the elements of Big Bang cosmology. Uh, 
And that really, uh, you know, surprised me as a young man because I knew that no scientist had even hinted at the idea of a Big Bang universe until the 20th century. So here is a book written thousands of years ago that said that the beginning of the universe is the beginning of space and time, that the universe continuously expands from this space-time beginning under constant laws of physics, where one of those laws is a pervasive law of decay. And I knew enough about physics to realize that implied, based on what the Bible said about the universe, that the universe must get colder and colder in a highly predictable way. And the measurements of the past cooling of the universe were matching what the Bible had taught. And so this was proof for me that this book was predicting future scientific discoveries. And I spent two years going through this book trying to find a provable uh, error or contradiction. Couldn't find any, but I found hundreds of places where it had predicted future scientific discoveries. And I realized the only possible explanation is these Bible authors must be inspired by the one that created the universe. You know what I love about the Gideons? Once you reach that conclusion, they got a couple of pages at the end of their Bible which kind of take you through the basics, pointing out, for example, that we human beings are not perfect, but God demands moral perfection. And the only way we're going to get it is through coming to the creator of the universe and uh, taking advantage of his offer. I love the way the Gideons put it, that uh, Jesus Christ, creator of the universe, died on the cross and rose from the dead so that he could trade his moral perfection for a moral imperfection. I said, that sounds like a good deal. Uh, and, but also appreciate the fact they said, the creator knows better than we do what's best for our life. And what we need to do is put him in charge and make him the master of my life. And they don't let you off the hook. The Gideons have a place for you to sign your name and date it, making that commitment. So I did that uh, several decades ago. And uh, that's what kind of led me into what I'm doing today. Wow. Wow. We're, we're going to get into the astronomy here in just a moment. But I just... You got to tell one more Gideon story. I love the Gideons. My dad was a Gideon, and oh, my wow. grandfather was the president of the other. He was an alcoholic Irish immigrant boxer who came to Christ and then became the president of the Gideons for the state of Missouri. So I love those stories. Tell the one you were telling me back in the green room about um, speaking to sure. physicists in, in, well, I guess it was a pre-story, and then it matches into the later story. Well, I love the Gideons. I've done a number of fundraisers for them. And I remember doing one in Santa Barbara where we were raising money for Bibles for Russia. And this is a time when the Soviets were in control. We're talking the 1980s. And uh, we raised over $35,000. Uh, but it was a year and a half later, I found myself in Moscow. Now, I was invited to come to Russia by the Soviet government to speak to their scientists. But I was told, do not speak to any non-scientists, only scientists. Uh, and if they caught me speaking to anybody else, they would put me on the airplane. But I was giving an address to an audience of 700 physicists. and 700 Soviet Union physicists. Physicists, right. Okay. And at the end of my talk... Uh, they said, well, can you tell us how you became a Christian? So I kind of gave my Gideon testimony and also explained to them how they too could become Christians, kind of walked them all through it. We prayed, and I said, if you made that prayer, would you please sign your name on a piece of paper and get it up here to the front? Didn't realize there was a paper shortage, 
And these physicists were almost rioting, trying to find paper that they could write their name on. We estimate that at least 95% of those physicists prayed to receive Christ and made a public commitment. Uh, But what was really wonderful, I didn't know this, there were two men at the back who gave a Gideon Bible to each of those physicists. And they told me afterwards, these are the Bibles that uh, were paid for by the event you did in Santa Barbara. That so. is such a great story. Oh, yeah. my goodness, that is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and I've heard you say that there's ten times as much cosmological information in the Bible as there are in the holy books combined, I think I heard you say. That's that. right, and that's something that non-Christian astronomers have noted. I mean, Fred Hoyle, who comes from a Hindu perspective... Mm-hmm. He noted that the Bible is loaded with commentary on the universe. And that's something I discovered when I first went through it. Because the other holy books don't say much. The Bible says a lot in great detail. Everything it says we now know is correct. Wow. Wow. And another thing I've heard you say that I found fascinating is that we have this impression that, you know, scientists are not open to God and that kind of thing. But I've heard you say that when it comes to astronomers... It's amazing. At MIT, you said you had had experience where you went to MIT and found so many were, were followers of Christ compared to biologists. Is, is that like, but there's like three. The problem is there's, well, the challenge is there's three million biologists, but not that many astrophysicists. It's about 12,000 practicing astronomers in the world, wow. over three million research biologists. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the difference is this. In astronomy, our evidence comes from the past because it takes light time to travel from galaxies to reach our telescopes. Mm-hmm. So our data comes from deep time, mm-hmm. whereas most biologists spend their time studying the present living system. Mm-hmm. You notice what it tells us in Genesis 1. For six days, God creates. Mm-hmm. On the seventh day, he rests from his work of creation. Not that he stopped working. He targets the problem of evil on day seven. But this is the day where he ceases from his work of creating. And notice in Genesis 1, you have the first six days closed out. There's an evening and a morning. Each day has a start point and an end point. But there is no evening and morning for day 7. We're still in the seventh day. And you'll find passages in the New Testament that declare that we're currently in God's seventh day. So if you're a scientist doing research in the human era, you'll see no evidence in your science uh, for the intervention work of God because he's at rest. But if you're an astronomer getting your data from uh, before human beings, you're going to see that evidence everywhere. And so it explains why the majority of the physical scientists, mathematicians, physicists, and astronomers, and chemists believe in God in an afterlife that only a small minority of biologists do. It's all explained in Genesis chapter 1. My goodness, that I'll think about that all week, okay, get my head around that. You said that at MIT, for example, you had been there at some conference, and there were a well, high I, number of... Uh, well, I gave a message on scientific evidence for God at MIT, and I got introduced to the Radio Astronomy Research Group, 13 professors and senior graduate students mm-hmm. in the Radio Astronomy Research Group. All 13 were evangelical Christians. Or another time where I spoke in Tokyo, and this is a country that's less than 2% Christian, Mm -hmm. spoke at the National Observatory in Tokyo. Half of the astronomers that attended my talk told me they were Christians already. Half of the other half said they were studying the Bible so they could become Christians. And I asked each one of them, what is it that motivated you to study the Christian faith? 
Every one of them said the anthropic principle. We look at the universe, everywhere we look, we see overwhelming evidence for supernatural design. And we know that design is, doesn't match Shintoism or Confucianism or Buddhism. This is what motivated us to go out and get a Bible and start reading it. So, wow. I mean, I'm seeing that around the world. So. And, and you, you've spoken at over 350 universities, I believe, and that yes. number increases all the time. And just to walk in there, I, I just have huge admiration. Just, just awesome. Uh, can we test God's creation through science? Is that something that we can do? We can do? Well, we're told to put everything to the test and hold fast to that which is good. That's Paul's command in First Thessalonians. And so what I noticed in the other holy books, there was a discouragement about testing. Or there was an appeal to subjective testing. The Bible alone commanded objective testing and actually showed me step by step how to put everything to the test. Now, I grew up in Canada. I was taught the scientific method in grade one. We got it every single year, but none of our teachers told us where it came from. When I began to go through this book, the scientific method jumped off the pages, and I realized it's no accident that the scientific revolution exploded out of Reformation Europe. The Reformation is when everybody began to read the Bible for themselves. And, you know, researchers discovered this testing method. So I call it the biblical testing method rather than the scientific method because <laughs> this is where it actually comes from. Uh, but, yeah, we're commanded to put things to the test. And, you know, kind of what we do at Reasons to Believe, our whole focus is on developing brand new evidences for the Christian faith for the simple reason that my experience as an evangelist it's much easier to engage somebody on something that was discovered two days ago mm. and use that as a bridge to what happened 2,000 years ago. Mm. Mm. Uh, especially here in the Los Angeles area, it's hard to talk, get a conversation going on the resurrection, but it's easy on something that's brand new that gives uh, that kind of new evidence. And literally every day, we're counting about 10 research papers or more that are published that give us more evidence for the Christian faith. And the principle is this. Uh, if your faith system is true, then the more we learn from the book of nature, the more evidence we're going to find for our faith. But if it's not true, the more we learn from the book of nature, the more evidence we're going to uncover that there are inconsistencies. So this is one way you can uh, you know, test Islam, uh, test Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, literally, the more we've learned about the universe, the more evidence accumulates that what the Hindu uh, Vedas talk about the universe is provably wrong. Uh, whereas with the Bible, it's going the other way. So every day, we have opportunities to put to the test our faith and see our faith in Jesus Christ grow. Does the Big Bang discovery eliminate the need for a creator? Well, not at all. It was a discovery of the Big Bang that led to the space-time theorems. Uh, and this was what launched Stephen Hawking to worldwide fame. He and Roger Penrose developed a mathematical theorem based on the Big Bang concept that if the universe contains mass, and you and I are both evidence that it does, um, and if... Me more than you. Are you trying to say something? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not trying to say anything. <laughs> So actually, by increasing mass, I'm validating the, the theorem there. So that this is a if you have any mass at all, okay, okay, you're validating okay, okay, okay. the theorem. So whichever way it goes is fine. Uh, 
But no, if the universe contains mass and if general relativity accurately describes the movements of bodies in the universe, then space and time must have a beginning and a causal agent beyond space and time must bring the universe of space-time matter and energy into existence. Now, immediately the physicists saw the Christian implications because it's the God of the Bible that creates independent of space and time or outside of space and time, whereas in the other religions it's God creating within space and time that eternally exists. And so for a couple of decades, astronomers and physicists tried to find some loophole around these space-time theorems. As a result, they wound up publishing another 30 theorems, which basically made the case more and more compelling that indeed the only explanation for the universe is there must be a God beyond space and time that creates everything. And moreover, we're now realizing that when the expansion of the universe that six different Bible authors speak about tells us in Job, God alone expands the universe. We now know it's a supernatural expansion. If you were to ask me as a physicist, where in all the sciences do you find the most spectacular evidence for supernatural, superintelligent design? I would tell you it's the two factors that govern the expansion of the universe the mass of the universe, and dark energy. Dark energy, in order to get the right planets so that life is possible, must be fine-tuned to better than one part in 10 to the 122nd power. Or to put it another way, I can compare that fine-tuning design to the best example of human engineering creativity, which is a uh, you know, gravity wave telescope that was invented and designed and built uh, thanks to Caltech and MIT physicists. What that tells us is that the one that designed this dark energy so that planets would be possible it could have life at a minimum must be 10 to the 97 times, that is 10 trillion, 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 trillion times more intelligent and more knowledgeable than those Caltech and MIT physicists and that many times better funded than all the U.S. taxpayers. <laughs> well, I mention this because today, when you read the latest atheistic literature coming from physicists who are atheists, they're now conceding that they cannot avoid a deistic interpretation of uh, the universe because of the space-time theorems. Now the fight is getting against the personality of God. They admit they need a God for the math and the physics and the space and the time. But saying, why does God have to be personal? He must be personal because we're demonstrating that there's God beyond space and time at a minimum is 10 to the 97 times more intelligent, more knowledgeable, more creative, more powerful than we human beings. And only a person can manifest the attributes of intellect, knowledge, creativity, and power but far beyond we see claimed by the other gods of the religions of the world. So we are living in a day where we can scientifically prove there is a God beyond space and time who created everything. It's a personal God with far more personality than any of us can manifest. Moreover, he created the entire universe and designed it over the entire history of the universe so that we human beings can exist at this time with all the resources to fulfill the purpose for why God created us. He must be a loving being.
you know, something I've loved in your writings is that this is the perfect time for humans to be here to observe what's going on. We're in the right spot to right. see it all, and we're at the right time to see it all. Would you elaborate on that? Well, sure. I mean, if God put us here any earlier in the history of the universe, mm -hmm. light from the cosmic creation event wouldn't have adequate time to travel on the space surface of the universe and reach our telescopes. Mm -hmm. We would not be able to observe the cosmic creation event. And if you put us here any later, dark energy would speed that radiation away from us at greater than the velocity of light. We're living at the one time where we can see the whole history of the universe and actually directly observe the cosmic creation event. Now, I'll tell you how close we can get. We can get within a ten billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second of the creation event. We actually have images that show us what the universe was like, you know, that close to the cosmic creation event. And this is where we get the most compelling, rigorous evidence that a God beyond space and time indeed created the universe for the specific benefit and blessing of human beings. We're also at the only place. This universe has 50 billion trillion stars, but we're orbiting the one star where we get to see the whole story where life is even conceivable. Now, you might say it's a sheer coincidence that we're living at the one time, but how can it be a sheer coincidence that we're simultaneously living at the one place in this vast universe of 50 billion trillion stars. Wow. I think God wanted us to read that book. Wow. And this is something you see in uh, the Psalms, yeah. is that God indeed gave us two books, the law, the book of Scripture, and then the heavens declare the righteousness of God. All the peoples have seen his glory. He also gave us the book of nature. So the book of nature and then his book, the Bible, those two hand in hand. Both point well, to the what I tell thing. people, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. you're commanded to be a theologian. Right. You're also commanded to be a scientist. Right. So I'd say to all of you, don't leave it up to the professionals up here. Mm -hmm. We're all to have the fun of being involved in researching and studying God's two books, letting it change your life and the lives of other people we meet. Wow. We should have waited to sing How Great Thou Art till the end of the service, I think, <laughs> rather than the beginning of the service. Well, you, you've, I know you've already begun to delve into this, but what are the best arguments for belief in Christ as creator? Well, this is one reason why we're giving away to everybody who walked in this little card. It basically summarizes uh, those evidences. Now, as I've seen atheist scholars come to faith in Christ who have not had a Christian background, people like myself, Consistently, there are four categories of evidences that play a role in their coming to faith in Christ. One is the evidence for the origin of the universe and a being beyond space and time that creates the universe for humanity's benefit. Number two it would be the anthropic principle. Everywhere we look in the universe, in our galaxy and solar system, we literally see hundreds of features that must be exquisitely fine-tuned to make humans possible. I mean, Paul Davies, an agnostic physicist, said the evidence for design is overwhelming when we look at the universe. Number three would be the origin of life. We now have physical evidence that life originated on planet Earth in a geological whisker of time. Happened very quickly, but most significantly, without any prebiotic molecules. If you've got no building blocks, you've got no naturalistic model for the origin of life. It must be supernatural. Then you look at human beings, 
and there's been a paradigm shift in the last 15 years where now the predominant model for human origins is what you see in the scientific literature, the Garden of Eden hypothesis, because the new genetic evidence and cultural evidence so perfectly matches what the Bible teaches, namely that all humanity is descended from one man and one woman that lived a few tens of thousands of years ago in one location consistent with the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden. And they call it the Garden of Eden? They not only do that, they refer to the first man as the Y chromosome Adam and the first woman as the mitochondrial DNA Eve. And, uh, you know, their uh, location as the Garden of... So using biblical terminology, and it's because of how compelling the evidence is. I mean, we see these cultural big bangs. If you look at the bipedal primates that preceded us, we see no change in their bone structure, no evidence for evolution, no change in their DNA, and we see no change in our technology. But when humans show up on the scene, there are these explosions, technology, music, art, uh, religious expression shows up for the first time. Jewelry. I mean, in fact, the interesting thing is the jewelry far outweighs the tools in the finds of early humanity. I, I think it's the same today, but... Uh, <laughs> That, I, well, I love just reading this with such an encouragement to me. That whole fine-tuning, you talk about the 900 different features of the universe, and, the, and these are growing all the time? Or these, well, uh, as time goes on, it. is it getting more fine, the need for yeah, fine-tuning? Yeah, we document yeah. on our website, reasons.org slash fine-tuning. A 300-page compendium comes up that lists those 900-plus features with citations to the scientific literature that people can check out for themselves. Now that we got the web, you can actually read those papers online. Wow. So, wow. Wow. Very, very, very cool. Uh, let me, the biblical authors, they didn't know about space-time theorems. So is it possible that these verses are just talking about something else? And, you know, would, a skeptic might say, you know, you're just kind of reading into it what those passages are saying that are often poetic in nature. Well, the fact that they are repeated by different Bible authors. I mean, a dozen places in the Bible, it talks about the beginning of the universe and the beginning of space and time. So it's not just Moses, you know, the book of Hebrews. The universe that we can detect did not come from that which we can detect. You know, it's Paul that speaks about how before God created the universe, before the beginning of time, God had already began expressing his grace to human beings. He hadn't created us yet. But his grace towards us was put into effect before the beginning of time, 2 Timothy 1.9. The hope that we share in Jesus Christ was given to us before the beginning of time. And when it talks about uh, the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, there is no Hebrew word for universe. But the phrase, the heavens and the earth, you'll see it nine times in the Old Testament, refers to the totality of physical reality. All matter, all energy, all space, and time. So it's quite, I mean, and it's not just me looking at this from a 21st century perspective. Jewish theologians writing a thousand years ago saw these features in the scriptures and said this is what the Bible is saying about the universe. It took us a thousand years to scientifically prove it, but now we indeed have proven that what the Bible has declared is indeed accurate. Very cool. Um, can you talk some more about the fine-tuning? You, so you see the evidence as increasing 
as time goes on, as these fine-tuning elements are added to what needs to happen in order for us well, to Well, when I speak on a secular university campus, somewhere in my talk I'll point out, if you're not persuaded today, wait one month. And if you go to our website, that fine-tuning site, you'll actually see, because we actually give you kind of a history of how the evidence is built up over time. The probability of uh, God supernaturally creating the solar system or galaxy for our personal benefit gets approximately a million times stronger every month. And so if you're not convinced today, you wait a month, there should be a million times more evidence than what you had the previous month. And, uh, you know, that's the whole idea. We had reasons to believe are developing a testable creation model. Uh, I think we've got a book out there called More Than a Theory where we actually show you how well the biblical Christian model does in the light of new scientific discoveries compared to, say, uh, agnosticism, uh, compared to deism, uh, compared to theistic evolution. And so we kind of lay out three different creation models, three different non-theistic models, and show you over the past five years how well the models are performing. And, uh, you know, literally every day uh, you can add to that weight of evidence. Now, I've always felt that the multiverse, you know, it's kind of a cop-out on the point of those that say there's so much fine-tuning in our universe, it could have happened by accident, so that it must be one of many universes, so you increase the odds for it. But it's interesting, you see the multiverse is just fitting into Christian theology because that's what the new heaven and new earth will end up being. Did I understand that correctly? Yes, you did. Uh, the multiverse is actually something the atheists have borrowed from Christianity because, I mean, it's not just the universe. There's a heaven, there's a hell, there's an angelic realm, the new creation. I don't know how many realms God's created, but it's certainly more than one, and there may be more in the future. Uh, but what I find interesting about the atheistic version of the multiverse is its timing. They never used that argument until the evidence for supernatural design became utterly overwhelming. And I remember 30 years ago saying, eventually the evidence will become so powerful that the atheists will have nowhere else to go but to speculate that there's an infinite number of universes manifesting an infinite variety of characteristics. So all these amazing fine-tuned characteristics, they can argue, happens by pure chance. But it's a self-defeating argument because it not only would explain away divine design, it explains away human design. If you're going to appeal to an infinite number of an infinite number of universes where every conceivable circumstances happen, then that means all the research papers that Stephen Hawking has written don't, don't come from the product of his mind, they're the product of pure chance. The multiverse wrote those papers. He didn't write those papers. They're the product of pure chance. Well, no atheist thinks that way. They all believe that their mind actually has uh, some purposeful existence, and uh, therefore what you're doing is you're pointing out that there's an inconsistency. Uh, but there's another way to put it to the test. If the atheists are right, then the more we learn about the solar system, the universe, and our galaxy, and planet Earth, then the evidence for this design should shrink. If it's just simply based on pure chance, we'd expect the evidence to shrink. But if it really is a mind, the God of the Bible is behind us, we'd expect the evidence to grow. And so this is one way to put it to the test. Or I've used another example. Another way of looking at the multiverse is I'm flipping a nickel. 
a hundred thousand times, it comes up heads all one hundred thousand times. Now, that could be pure chance. More likely, it's a product of design. And so what I would do is look for more design. Show me the nickel. If I see heads on both sides, that's <laughs> evidence for design. Yeah. Or if I see that it's been weighted in some way, yeah. that's evidence for design. We can do that with the universe. We can choose to look for more design evidence. And that's what I said earlier. Every day, at least 10 papers are published that give us that additional evidence. So it makes it easier for me as a Christian. Every day, I've got a stronger case for my faith than what I had the day before. Let me back off one, because multiverse was really, you know, we've got to wrap it up in the next five minutes. I lost track of time, which happens a lot up here, they will tell you, you know, so I could sit here. But the beauty of this is we get to continue it half an hour from now. We'll continue the conversation in a different direction. I'm disciplining myself not to get in some of the cool things that we're going to talk about at 9.45 and then at 11.11. But let me back off just one, because the old thing, it seems to me, that used to be appealed to is, okay, if life couldn't have happened by accident on this planet, then maybe it happened on another planet and E.T. brought it here. But then, because it got so big that it couldn't have been brought here, then it got into the multiverse. So let's back off one. The universe is huge. Uh, what do you think of the possibilities of life out there? And I don't believe that that disproves the Bible if life is discovered on another planet. But just out of curiosity, you know, my wife will tell you I love alien movies. So uh, how how much chance is there? Well, when I first came here, I had a resident alien card. So. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, I don't mean Canadians. So I, I was thinking something else. Okay. But, you know, this debate I did with Victor Stenger at Caltech, yeah. as an atheist particle physicist, he agreed with me that yeah. everywhere else in the universe, it's hostile to advanced life. On the other hand, I've been on record in print in my books since 1988. We will find the remains of life in every solar system body. Why? Because Earth is so prolific with life that when meteors strike us of a certain size, it exports Earth's soil throughout the whole solar system. In fact, I've been encouraging NASA, let's go back to the moon, because on the moon we'll find the fossils of Earth's first life. They've been destroyed by Earth's geology. We don't have them here on the Earth, but the moon has virtually no geology. We can go back to the moon, find the fossils of Earth's first life, and see who got it right. Because, you know, Christians and atheists say very different things about what Earth's first life will look like. We can go to the moon and see who got it right. Wow, wow. Fair. And then one other thing that's kind of off on a little bit of a tangent, but I just was fascinated by it, and I'm cheating a little bit because this is more we're going to talk about at 11.11 with Ask the Beast, what was it? it? Initially it came to us, Ask the Birds and the Bees, and I thought, which is more popular, a talk on the birds and the bees or uh, this particular talk? But Ask the Beasts and the Animals. Um, you know, you have said that you mainly find atheists in urban settings and right. not as much in rural settings. And this is a little bit of a taste of where you're going at the 1111 service. Explain that. I, I found that very interesting. Well, we'll talk about this in the third service, about how birds... And we'll birds, get into the Job book yeah. quite a bit with animals and that kind of thing. Yeah. That birds and mammals are designed not only to serve and please us, but to teach us about the gospel. And so we're going to talk about exactly how did God design the birds and mammals... Uh, to teach us about God, ourselves, and our pathway to God. But it's something I've noticed. People who have intimate contact with a wide number of species of birds and mammals, 
they all believe in God. It's the urbanites who only see highly uh, bred dogs and cats uh, that are the atheists. And so when I go to rural Africa, for example, they all believe in God. They see it in the animals. And that's the problem today. More and more of humanity is living in cities uh, where they learn about the animals through watching documentaries on TV uh, rather than actually seeing them out there on the farms or in the wild. Uh, But yeah, I mean, you can see when you've had contact with animals that have never been abused by human beings, how powerfully motivated they are to relate to us. God designed us to relate to a higher being just as he designed these birds and mammals to relate to a higher being. And then we see how our abuse uh, breaks that relationship while also breaks the relationship we have with God. So that's just a little teaser of what oh, we'll talk about. that is fascinating, because I was thinking you meant, like, you know, just out in nature and how we feel connected with oh, God. Oh, I'm talking that about too. specifics. But you're talking about with animals and that thing. Yeah, oh, okay. we'll, we'll just say a lot more. So my wife grew up in a little town, and there were more cows on her farm than there were people in her town. Is that why she's such a godly woman? It's because she hung out with cows growing up. Well, the, cows are mentioned in Job 39 as a crucial animal that God gave us to launch civilization. If you don't have cows, you're in trouble. The wonderful thing about cows is how strong they are. And when they're emotionally bonded to human beings, what makes them happy is doing heavy labor on our behalf. Now, our children aren't like that, but cows are. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We'll just continue this in a half an hour, but um, in more, moving more in the Genesis and, and that whole fascinating subject at, at 945 is, you know, is the scripture and Genesis and, and, and science of the enemies or allies? I can't wait uh, to get into that. Let me let you do a commercial here, okay? I, I kind of gave a preview of some of these books, but this one here, this is your testimony. If they fill this out right here, this card... And place well, it at the doors, then you'll give this uh, free. Well, notice is right? this is a tear-off. They can keep this part with all the content on it, but if they fill this out, okay. uh, yeah, they'll get a free copy of the DVD. Okay. And it's, That's you know, right not just my testimony, I also uh, answer questions from skeptics wow. that, are, that are there, and that's all there. So this could be a good thing to maybe share with a friend, too. It's an outreach tool. Okay. So that's why we want to give it away to everybody so okay. they can use it as an outreach tool. Okay. And then, yeah, we've been talking about these evidences. If people want to see how this stands up in front of a highly educated, hostile audience of atheists, yeah, they can get this. Yeah, the great debate. The that great was debate. Very. And I'm glad that guy you recommended this. I was so mean this. to you. I wanted to beat him up or something like that, you know. But you were just so gracious in response. Well, he actually helped me. Wow. Um, because you know, you got to hear what he says at the very end of the debate. They wow. gave him the last words. Wow. Wow. But he was the only atheist that made an honest statement about the... I remember he said, you had one phrase to say for each one, and he said, we're just frozen ice. He, said, the... he looked out at this whole audience of 700 atheists and said, remember, you are all cold nothing. You have no purpose. Because all the other speakers were claiming, you know, we have meaning, we have purpose, and he said, that's nonsense. If there is no God, we're no better than a rock. Wow, wow, okay, okay. Well, I'm so glad we're more than a rock, and I'm so glad that you give us encouragement and confidence in that. Could we thank Dr. Ross for being with us here?
you'll, you'll be here at the front for a little bit before sure. we give you a chance to catch your breath. You know what? They hear me close in prayer all the time. Dr. Ross, would you close us in prayer? Let's stand I'd be happy to. Out. Father in heaven, thank you for your servant, Peter, who told us to always be ready to provide good reasons for the hope within us, but to do it in a spirit of gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience. So, Father, pray as we go away today, you would help us to pursue those good reasons. But also help us, Lord, to to listen to uh, critique from our Christian friends and from our non-Christian friends. Lord, that we may gain day by day a greater spirit of gentleness, respect, and compassion. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.